Thank you, Pastor Matt. Several months ago, I let Pastor Mac know that I would be willing to teach the passage on younger men when it came up on our Sunday evening studies in Titus. So, on the first weekend in March, when the Cruz family was out of town traveling, I was given the assignment to teach that text out of order. I promised that night that Pastor Matt, at some point, would go back and pick up the text that related to younger women. Guess what? <laughs> Pastor Matt asked me this week if I would present the evening message tonight, and guess what I get to do? <laughs> you guessed it. I get to cover the text about younger women. Before we jump into that text, I'd like to focus our attention upon its critical nature by sharing an illustration that Mary Farrar, she's the wife of Steve Farrar, a men's minister, she utilized this illustration to begin her book on God's design for women, an excellent book. It begins this way. One night in Epsworth, England, the church bell began to ring. Awakened from their sleep, the townspeople ran out into the night. To their dismay, the sky was illuminated by a house engulfed in flames. A crowd gathered to fight the fire, working desperately, feverishly, but it was too late. The house had become an unquenchable inferno. Samuel and Susanna had escaped the flames along with six of their children. Soon, it was discovered that one child was missing. Realizing the worst, Samuel headed back towards the blaze, only to be held back from certain death by the townspeople. And so, in silent torture, they stood helpless. Then someone in the crowd shouted, Look! A little face had appeared in an upstairs window. Johnny had awakened and had made his way to the window. Instantly, two men ran towards the house. One climbed upon the shoulder of the other as they stretched their bodies to form a human ladder up to the child. Within moments, the child was pulled through, brought to safety on the arms of a living ladder. That little Johnny was someone that we know as John Wesley. When he would give his testimony, he would say, I was plucked like a firebrand out of the fire, not once, but twice. Once as a child, and once when Christ saved him. So Mary asks, why do I tell this story? I quote her. I tell it because it is a vivid picture of our culture. A culture that has become a towering inferno. The difference is that in this inferno, we do not find a house being destroyed, but the home. Considering the specific group addressed in tonight's text, it behooves us to remember that one of the primary accelerants in our cultural inferno is feminism. We would like to believe that feminism either isn't all that harmful or that we have escaped its influence. Unfortunately, feminism has infiltrated the church more than we care to admit, and it is far worse than many realize. During my tenure as a pastor in my denomination of birth, 
I learned that the leaders of my home church in Hillsborough had gone on record as declaring that they intended to be the first church in the denomination to ordain a woman pastor. At about the same time, the leadership of the district came out in support of a constitutional amendment allowing ordination of women that was going to be presented at the next national meeting. That amendment went down to a crushing defeat at the next convention. But this did not stop the leadership from continuing their efforts to marshal support for the change. They kept working hard. These leaders knew that I would never support this. So I should not have been surprised when I learned that my district pastor had been shopping me around to different denominations. I should not have been shocked when my district chairman told me that I had no future in the denomination and that I ought to go to a Bible church where they believed like I did. You see, fueled by misinterpretation of Galatians 3.28, where we find these words, there is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus, fueled by a misinterpretation of this text, feminism infiltrated my home church and countless others. Because it is so pervasive in our culture and it impacts even how we view tonight's text, we must take a few moments to clarify where it comes from and what it aims to do. So, the first thing we must realize is that feminism is not a recent development, even though my generation thinks it was invented when we were in high school. It's not a recent development. In fact, it is as old as mankind. If you have your scripture handy, quickly turn to the near, very near the beginning, Genesis 3.16. Genesis 3.16. You already know where we're headed, don't you? This is the story of the fall of mankind, and after the temptation has been succumbed to, Adam and Eve have both failed and sinned. God proclaims several pronouncements to both the serpent, to the man, and to the woman. And to the woman, he said, in verse 16, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. We tend to think that that's the curse. It's not pleasant, but that's not the curse. Here's the curse. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now that word desire is a very interesting word in the original language and it's used just a few chapters on when God is speaking to Cain and telling Cain that sin desires you. It crouches at your door and it desires you. The word means total domination. Total domination. So, the wife is going to want to totally dominate the husband. And the husband is going to want to totally dominate the wife. You see the curse? 
neither the husband or the wife are going to have an easy time following God's design. Each are going to try and want to dominate the other. We don't have nearly enough time tonight to trace this stand through biblical materials. But it is helpful to remember that feminism attempted to take over the very early church. The early Gnostic Marcion was excommunicated from the church in A.D. 150. So this is fairly close to when the church was founded. This heretic was excommunicated, so what does he do? He goes out and he sets up a rival church. And guess who he appoints as bishops and priests? All women. Feminism is nothing new. Neither is it innocuous. Listen to what the feminists have stated as their aims, and I hope we get this up there. Gloria Steinem was a name that was absolutely well known when I was in high school. She was the face of feminism, and she wrote, by the year 2000 we will, this is feminist, I hope, raise our children to believe in human potential. Notice the next two words. Not God. Very important. The Declaration of Feminism in 1971 declares this. The end of the institution of marriage is necessary for the liberation of women. Therefore, it's important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands and not live individually with men. That's horrible. What comes next is even worse. It is important for us to encourage women to leave their husbands, live individually with men. All history must be rewritten. In terms of oppression of women, guess who is oppressing women? Men. Then it gets worse. We must go back. This is the declared goal of feminism. We must go back to ancient female religions like witchcraft. A more recent feminist, Roman Catholic theologian Carol Christ said, I found God in myself. And I loved her fiercely. Feminism leaves its mark upon all, whether female or male. Peter Jones wrote concerning Al Gore's book, Earth in the Balance, Ecology and the Human Spirit, Gore's involvement in ecology is an expression of his belief in the connectedness of all things, in the great value of all religious faiths, and in the hope that ancient pagan goddess worship will bring us planetary and personal, see what it says? Salvation. Al Gore is a card-carrying Baptist. This is sad. Brothers and sisters, we now live in the midst of the second generation of women who have been raised in a culture that is totally dominated by feminism. Whether we realize it or not, this is where we are. Feminism constantly mocks God's word and what it proclaims about God's design for men and women. As we return to Paul's instructions to Titus, we must remember that those instructions reflect God's design. 
And that violation of these truths pours accelerant on the inferno. We're adding fuel to the fire. So, turn to Titus 2. We begin at verse 1 so that we have the context. And we'll read through the end of verse 5. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older women, sorry, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. The context of our text here, obviously, is the admonition to Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. The end of verse 5 declares that the purpose of this teaching, particularly in the lives of younger women, is that God's word may be revered rather than reviled. The greater section addresses four groups. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women. Each of these groups encounter specific challenges and opportunities in living out sound doctrine. Our focus tonight for the rest of our time is on the end of verse 3 through verse 5, highlighting the connection between the older and younger women in God's perfect plan. First, we must note that God's design is good. You see, culture declares that God's design is damaging. And it is to be discarded. That is the stated goal of feminism and many other of the accelerants in our culture. Vivian Gornick, just one tiny example of this, a feminist author at the University of Illinois wrote, being a housewife is an illegitimate occupation. Isn't that a wonderful thing to say? Being a housewife is an illegitimate occupation. This is only one example and a mild example of the attempts to disparage and to mock God's design. Popular media consistently ridicules biblical values and consistently portrays them as harmful and to be avoided. Conversely, popular media always shows immorality as normal and to be pursued. Brothers and sisters, whether we like to admit it or not, we have all been exposed to this corrosive deluge in our culture. We need the reminder that Paul gives us here when he starts talking about older women and younger women that Scripture declares that God's design is good. Verse 3 declares that the older women are to teach what is good and what they are to teach follows. And what follows outlines one of Scripture's clear expressions of God's design. So regardless of how loudly the world screams that this design is deplorable, the truth is that only the Creator knows what is best for His creation. He alone knows what He designed into us and how we must live to experience all the blessings of this marvelous design and all the blessings our hearts crave. I wish we had time to explore the intricacies of this marvelous design, but we don't. 
we must be content with considering the specific instructions for younger women, but let us do so with the acclamation ringing in our ears that God's design is, what is it? Good. It's good. So, we are told next that God's design is for older women to train younger women to do seven things or to be trained in seven areas. The first area is love your husbands. Now, all of the parts of God's specific design for younger women listed here require training. And this training is to be done by older women in the church. This implies several things. First of all, it implies that this does not come naturally. It's not something that just will happen by accident. And it was also implies that it was neither Titus' responsibility nor his assignment to be directly involved in this training process. Rather, he was to instruct the older women to take on this vital task. Violation, violation of this pattern would have caused harm then, and it causes harm if pursued today. So let's get to the first area. The first area of training is found in a single word in the original language, philandros. This is a compound word from phileo, which means lover of, and aner, which means husband. So the first duty of older women to younger women is to train them to be husband lovers. Paul indicated that this love must be taught. So it has to be something beyond romantic love, a love that tends to fade over time. Rather, it's the kind of selfless love exemplified by our Savior, the kind of love husbands are to have for their wives, wives for their husbands, and believers for other believers. So this message is for all of us, isn't it? John MacArthur notes, the way you train yourself to love your husband is to continue to serve and serve and serve. You will have such a massive investment in him, you will say, I've got too much in this guy not to love him. He concludes, it's the love of will and deep commitment. It's the kind of love described in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, we find this instruction. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the kind of love that needs to happen. Older women are also to train younger women to love their children. The second area of training is also found in a single compound word in the original language. This time it's philotechnos. This comes from phileo, you heard that before, which means lover of, and technos, which means children. So the second duty of older women to younger women is to train them to be children lovers. Now, dearly beloved, when one first lays eyes on their own child. It is virtually impossible not to love them. But something happens. Sleep deprivation. The child's sin nature. All of a sudden these things start to take their toll and the impulse to flee this responsibility takes root. The selfless love required to raise a child in the fear of the Lord is not our natural bent. If we're to truly love them, 
we must exhibit a selfless love that dominates our influence of them and dominates our assistance in their growth towards knowing Christ. So this begs a question that we really must at least address, acknowledge. What about women who are single? Or women who are unable to bear children? Paul makes it clear elsewhere that God does give the gift of singleness to a few. And that they have unique ability and opportunity to serve the body of Christ if they have been given this gift. Scripture also addresses those unable to bear children and promises that they too will have unique roles in ministry. However, the majority of women, according to Scripture, will find expression of God's design for them in marriage and in childbearing if they're to experience that design to be good. As Scripture declares, they must be trained in the selfless love needed by their husbands and their children. That's two of the things. Number three, next older children or women are to train younger women to be self-controlled. Those of you who were here on the beginning of March for our consideration of the instructions Titus was to pass along to younger men will have noted that those instructions to each of these four groups included the exhortation to be self-controlled. We also noted at that time that this is part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit and that it is impossible to maintain apart from walking in the Spirit. Lest we think this is only a New Testament concept, listen to the words of Proverbs 25:28. Proverbs 25:28 tells us, "A man without self-control is like a city broken into." and left without walls. Self-control is the wall of protection in every believer's life, keeping them from a destroyed, defenseless life and bringing honor to the power of the gospel. This is true of all believers, men and women of all ages. So what does it look like? Good question. Well, it looks like a number of things. Among them, it looks like whom and what we listen to. It means filtering everything we read, see, and hear through the lens of Scripture, tuning out those voices that steer us away from biblical thinking and living. It looks like productive use of our time. Time management always requires wisdom and discernment from the Lord. It looks like controlling our tongues. Self-control replaces frivolous, perhaps even dangerous talk with grateful, calm speech. It looks like caring for our bodies. What we do with our bodies does matter greatly to God. We're to present our members as instruments of righteousness to Him, according to Romans 6.13. And, please don't feel like I'm aiming at anyone, it looks like a well-kept house. I'm not looking at anyone. All families are blessed by an environment of nurture and order. Dearly beloved, self-control is within the reach of every believer by walking in step with the Spirit, and it benefits everyone around it. Next, the older women are to train younger women to be pure. The word Paul used here was hognos, literally to be chaste, morally pure, virtuous, sexually faithful to their husbands. Peter affirmed this instruction, the tenor of it, in his first letter, where we find in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, 
speaking to the women in the church, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Paul amplified the same thought in his first letter to Timothy, when 1 Timothy 2, verse 9 and 10, he said, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So, how do older women train the younger in this? Well, they train them with help regarding modest clothing. That's something that this world's not very good at. It trains them with avoidance of the all, or helping the younger women avoid the all-consuming preoccupation with appearance. Most of all, it is working on what is inside, teaching them to adorn their hearts so that they reflect biblical grace. Next, older women are to train younger women to be working at home. This is where the feminists really start to howl. They want to be set free from any linkage to being housewives. Once again, Paul used a single compound word in the original language, oikurigos. This comes from the words oikos, which is literally house, and ergon, or work. You can put this together. It's not a term that feminists like. This word identifies the younger woman's primary sphere of responsibility and influence. It's her domain. It is the place in which she by, di by design flourishes. So does this mean that no young woman may ever do any work outside the home? I'd like to suggest to you that the picture of the Proverbs 31 woman would say that that's not the case. This ideal wife went out to tend to her fields, etc., etc. This does not mean that you cannot ever work outside the home, but it does mean that the home is her primary sphere of responsibility. In a culture that constantly urges women to flee the home, it's critical that older women help train younger women, not only in the mechanics of fulfilling this responsibility, but also in the value, in the dignity, in the fulfillment found in cooperating with the spirit in this realm of life. Next, young, older women are to train younger women to be kind. Kindness is reflected in being gentle, tender-hearted, merciful, and thoughtful. Now let's be honest. When the only conversations you have had for the last months are with preschoolers, and you have worn yourself ragged trying to keep your home from resembling a disaster area, kindness is not the natural thing to bubble out of you when your spouse finally gets home, collapses in the easy chair in front of the basketball game on TV. Guys, we've got to do better than that. But you can see 
that human nature makes it incumbent upon older women to train younger women in kindness. The days of endless diapers and sick kids will come to an end. And the kindnesses husbands and wives bestow upon one another during those fleeting days set the tone for decades of life together post-kids. Older women have a much more realistic perspective that can help younger women heed the Spirit's nudge to be kind when the flesh wants its pound. Finally, older women are to train younger women to be submissive to their husbands. This is where feminists go from a howl to a blood-curdling scream. In their demand that all history be rewritten in terms of the oppression of women, this is their identified greatest offender. They demand freedom from, and truth be told, they demand domination over men. And the idea of voluntary submission to anyone's leadership is anathema to them. Dearly beloved, here is where even those of us in Bible-loving and Bible-believing churches may have drunk more of the Kool-Aid than we realize. Now let's be clear. Paul's instructions are both clear, concise, and specific. The submission that is to be modeled and encouraged by older women is submission to their own husband. Not somebody else's husband but their own. This is an echo of Ephesians 5.22 where Paul cites creation order and in an atmosphere of mutual submission to Christ, the husband is tasked to take the lead in the home and the wife is tasked to support that lead. No man can lead as he should unless he has bowed the knee to Christ. No woman can fulfill her design in marriage unless she's bowed the knee to Christ and obedience to Him willingly supports her husband's lead. When both bow their knee to Christ and they together walk in the Spirit, something beautiful, something amazing happens. That which the world screams is damaging to be deplored turns out to be healing and beautiful. We must hurry on to our close. Paul makes one more point, And that is that God's design followed prevents God's word from being reviled. We've seen that God's design, though in many ways opposite that which the world acclaims, is good. And it brings delight when followed. The fact of the matter is that as much as we want to make this about us, it's not. It's about our testimony. And it's about whether God's word is blasphemed. When the world sees us ignoring its instructions, whether it's older men, older women, younger men, younger women, doesn't matter. When the world sees us ignoring its instructions, it gives the world license to mock us as hypocrites and to dishonor God's word. When it sees us obeying God's word, it may mock us all at once for missing all it has to offer. 
but it has no grounds whatsoever to declare that God's word makes no difference in our lives. Following God's design prevents his word from being dishonored. We began with an example or an illustration of an inferno. As we close, please allow me to give you one more very brief example, also referenced in Mary Farrar's book. There's another true story about a burning house. Once again, a large crowd gathered outside to fight back the flames, but this fire too was beyond quenching. Standing back, the crowd watched the flames rage out of control. Then unexpectedly came the faint cries of a child. As the fire grew more intense, the cries became more compelling. Suddenly, a man broke loose from the crowd, raced towards the house. Before the stunned audience, he disappeared into the flames. Seconds seemed like hours as they waited for him to appear. And then the cries of the child stopped. Momentarily, the man emerged from the doorway with a bundle in his arms. Then, overcome by the smoke, he fell to the ground. Out of his arms tumbled the bundle, a large safety box. The man had risked his life to rescue his life savings. Mary Farrar asks, what kind of man could close his ears to the scream of a dying child for the sake of money. Her conclusion is only a morally and spiritually impoverished man. Brothers and sisters, if we have allowed the corrosive influence of our culture into our lives, we may be closer to that man than we care to admit. You see, when we ignore God's design, when we allow culture's siren call to affect our lives, we pour accelerant on the inferno. My prayer for us, my prayer for me, is that God would help us to not only heed his design, but by his grace and through his spirit's power, help us to follow that design to his glory and to the honor of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is sharp and penetrating to the very heart of the matter of every issue. We recognize that we have been treading upon ground that the world does not want us to even step upon. The world wants us to give up this ground and to say that it's wrong and that we were wrong to ever accept it. But Father, this is your word. You have made us. You have designed us. You desire your best for us and we want to let your design be implemented in our lives. We know that that will not make things easier. We know in some ways it will make things harder but we also know that it is the only way for us to be blessed by you the way that we desire and it's the only way for you to be honored and for your word to be magnified. Help us this week 
to be more in tune to your word, more in tune to your spirit's nudges, and help us to joyfully obey your word that we may honor you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.